Let's jump in. Week two of a series that we started last week, and it's called Revive, and we're talking about revival. And if you come from a church background, maybe this word brings some images into your mind. It's kind of old school, right? Like we think of tent revivals and and uh, my grandparents, they, they would lead these things called revival. So we, we're really going old school for this series, which is why I brought out this beautiful pulpit. You like it? Yeah, it's nice, right? Yeah. We actually had to find this because uh, this is not a popular item any longer. And um, I had a friend of mine add a cross on the front because I feel like that was necessary. I don't know. That's old school, right? My dad was making fun of me because he said, oh, I see you've been working on your pulpit bumper. So you got a pulpit. And I said, <laughs> I never liked you. Anyway, so we're talking about revival. And really what revival is, is when God shows up in a really powerful and intense way when he begins to move people's hearts, that he begins to shake people at their very core, there's a spiritual awakening that happens, and it can be within a family, it can be within a community, a church, an entire nation. And we looked at some examples throughout scripture of different revivals that we've seen, and we saw some in church history, but at, um, the result of a revival is threefold. Sleepy Christians are awakened. Now, I don't know if you know any sleepy Christians or not. I've run into a couple myself. I look at one in the mirror very often. And a sleepy Christian is somebody who, I've been a Christian for a while, yeah, I get it, I go to church, I do all this stuff, and there's this, there's this passion that's missing. There's an apathy that I have. I once may have been very excited about my faith and about what God is doing, and then it's just become normalized in my life. And so we're praying that God is gonna show up and he's gonna wake some of us sleepy Christians up. And then there's also these, uh, these nominal Christians. And nominal Christians are people who, yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. And it's more of a cultural identity. It's more of a, uh, yeah, if I were gonna pick on a quiz, which, yeah, Christianity, that's the one for me. And it's those people that are gonna realize, I don't actually know this God. And they're going to be spiritually awakened to realize that and come into a saving relationship with him. And of course, there's non-believers, people who aren't sure about Jesus, and Jesus speaks to them in a profound way, and they enter into a relationship with him. And so as I look at my own life, and I look at the community, and I look at our church, and I look at the nation that we live in, I don't think that we could dispute that we need God to show up and do something. We really need him to do something profound because I've been spinning my tires for a really long time and it's not working. And so I can't do it within my power and I'm guessing you can't either. And so we need God to show up and to do something significant. So that's why we as a church are praying for God to show up and bring revival. Last week we talked about elements of revival and one of the first uh, things that we see as God begins to awaken us is a recovering of the scriptures. And we talked about Josiah and how he literally found the scriptures, but it's about people maybe finding it for the first time or rediscovering the revolutionary message of Jesus and getting passionate about it and jumping in and just going, I can't believe that God has spoken to me and I get to, I get to hear his words through this book. And we talked about it kind of being like a really long text message that God has sent us. And we just have to decide, are we gonna read the text message or are we not? Are we gonna be in this thing? Are we gonna be consuming this thing? Are we gonna let it shape us? Or will we continue to be apathetic? So today we're gonna continue this on. We're gonna talk about what kind of the next element of revival is when God begins to show up. And uh, I wanna illustrate this through a, a story that Jesus told him. 
And let me kind of set up the context. You have two different groups of people that Jesus is teaching to. Uh, on one side, you have what are referred to as the sinners and the tax collectors. And so the sinners and the tax collectors are kind of like the, the outcasts of the society. These are the people that are the prostitutes and strippers and drug dealers and thieves and gangsters and lawyers and <laughs> just seeing if you're listening. So you have the outcasts of society and then you have the Pharisees and scribes. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who are all about the Bible. They know every single rule. There's like 612 commandments and they try to follow every single one and make sure that you do too. And so they are, uh, they're kind of the religious leaders of their day. And the Pharisees, they're watching Jesus and his teaching and they ask him this question, why do you continue to hang out with these jacked up people over here? These sinners, why would you be contaminated by them? And he answers their question with three parables. If you're not a church person, a parable is really just a, a made up story with a theological point. And so Jesus gives them three different stories. The first one is about a lost sheep. The second one is about a lost coin. And both of them are illustrating the joy that somebody finds um, when something that was lost is now found. And then he goes to the story that we're gonna be talking about today and it is the prodigal son. The prodigal son, even if you're not a church person, it may sound familiar, and you may know kind of the, 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 the bullet points of this story, because it's not just uh, another story that Jesus told, it's probably not even just the most famous story that Jesus ever told, it's probably one of the more famous stories ever told. And the reason why is um, not because it's uh, incredibly creative, it's because of what it tells us about who we are and who God is and how we can know him. So up until this point, and even till today, every religion has said, here's how you can know God. You can know God by doing X, Y, and Z and hoping that you're good enough. Here's how you can connect to God. And then Jesus comes along and he says, actually, I'm speaking on behalf of the Father and this is how you can know God. And it turns the whole religion upside down. All religious ways of thinking up until this point have been one way and then he turns it and says, nope, it's actually this way. In fact, it was such a big deal that at the beginning of Christianity, um, they often were called uh, atheist by pagans. And they were called the anti-religion because that was literally the opposite of what all other religions then and now teach. So let's jump into the story. Here's what happens, it's in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, your Bible app, uh, I challenge you to, uh, to jump in there with us and read along, uh, maybe even take some notes. All right, here we go. Luke 15, verse 11 says this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now this is a very, very strange conversation. Can you imagine going to your parents and saying this? Dad, I want my inheritance and I want it now. Now in my household, what would happen is, um, this would be before or after uh, he hit me, would be, um, <laughs> he'd probably give me his bills and he goes, here's your inheritance, son. But, um, <laughs> but this, is not, this is not a polite thing to say. And in fact, this is incredibly rude. And in the type of culture that they lived in, it was an honor and shame culture, and this would have been so shameful for this son to make this request, because what he's saying is, Father, I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff. And so to redeem his honor, he would have to publicly shame and disgrace and probably disown his son if he wanted to save face in that culture. But of course, this story is full of twists and turns, and so that's not how he responds. It says in verse 12, so he divided his property between them, Literally meaning the father divided himself. 
he would have had to sell off all of his possessions, or at least a, a portion of his possessions in order to give this kid his inheritance. So, okay, I've got to take a piece of my land, I've got to take a piece of my savings, I've got to take a piece, I've got to begin to sell all of this off so that you can have your inheritance. And not only did it tear his life apart uh, materially, but it also did it to his reputation in the community. Which you probably would think that too. I mean, you don't have to think, I don't think we're that far out of the, uh, the, the cultural context to think if we saw someone do this, and then we would say, what are you doing? Are you a fool? You kick that kid out, right? That kid's a pain in the butt. You can go, he can go live on the streets for a little bit. But yet that's not what the father, father does. And so he sacrifices his own reputation in the community. Continuing on verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got it together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And so the, the, the inheritance that he got, it didn't just come overnight. It was probably generations worth of saving and accumulating, and, and he went off and he took this thing that had been in his family for generations, and he just spent it all. It's gone. The original uh, word for squandered here means to throw grain in the air or to let the wind blow away the chaff. And so the image that I got was kind of like, uh, he was like a first century rapper. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about, like where he's making it rain. And he's like, yeah, right? Living that prodigal life, baby. And so he goes and he just throws all of this money away. Continues on, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Now remember, the audience that he's speaking to, Jesus, there's two sets of people. There's the sinners and tax collectors and then the Pharisees and scribes. And so it's very clear which of the two he's speaking to right now. This is the sinners and the tax collectors. You guys are the prodigal sons. You realize that you have rejected God. You have gone after your own desires. You've lived a pretty crazy lifestyle. And so they're hearing this and they're thinking, of course that's what happens. There's a famine. Because they all knew that a famine was really God disciplining somebody. That God was in control of the natural order. And so when there was a famine, it's because he wanted to discipline and punish a group of people or a person. And so this is what they were thinking is he's punishing the people who have rebelled against God. And you have to imagine that this is probably what the Pharisees are thinking as well. In 15, it says this. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who set him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In this moment, I would imagine that the Pharisees are thinking, this is a story that I can go along with. This is my kind of story. You tell them sinners, you tell them tax collectors. This is about God disciplining. This is about the consequences of sin. I like this story, Jesus. I wasn't too sure about him before, but I'm, I think I'm starting to get along with him. You tell him, Jesus. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love the phrase in verse 17, it says that it came to his senses, meaning he had this realization. He hit rock bottom and probably looked around and went, how did I get to this place? It's one of the reasons why I love people who have gone through recovery and become Christians, because they make the best Christians. 
Because this is like part of, it, like AA, you know, comes from the Christian faith and it's part of this is, oh, I hit rock bottom and I can't do this on my own anymore. He's having that moment where he's looking around and he's going, I need somebody to help me. I am a mess. I have made a complete mess of my life. And as I think back to where I could have been, I could have been in my father's house. He loved me. There was more than enough. In fact, his servants had more than enough. And so he begins to prepare a speech where he's gonna go and he's gonna beg for forgiveness. He's gonna say, look, I don't expect you to let me be your son again. In fact, I know I'll be at the bottom of the barrel, but anything is better than the mess that I've gotten myself into. And so if you'll just let me back, I'll, I'll be the lowest of the low. Just let me back in your house. And the listener reactions of both camps had to be kind of interesting. The sinners are probably sitting there thinking, okay, so if this Jesus is right, he's about to tell me my fate. Because whatever he says next is kind of going to be what happens to me. Will the father let him back? Will there be some kind of punishment? Of course there's going to be punishment. There has to be punishment. But is he going to forgive him at all? What's going to happen? And the Pharisees wrote this kid off a long time ago. This guy is unredeemable. This person is such a mess. If you're even going to discuss any kind of forgiveness, which I don't even think this kid deserves, there definitely has to be restitution. There has to be punishment. This kid has to earn his way back into the father's love. And then here's where... The world has changed forever. Because up until this point, all religions would say, that's right, you messed up, you gotta earn your way back. That's right, he's rebelled against God, he's gonna get punished. And then Jesus says something that changes everything. Here's what he says. So he got up and went to the Father. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, you gotta realize that this probably just set the Pharisees off. You're telling me that this Middle Eastern nobleman is running? First of all, they don't run. Okay, that's what children do. Children run. Adults do not run, especially towards this incredibly rebellious son. There's no way that you're welcoming this kid back. And so this is where things start to begin to take a pretty drastic turn. He says in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This, uh, this message that Jesus is giving, he's being very deliberate in the words that he's using and the things that he's emphasizing. He really emphasizes two things. One, how eager the father was to forgive. It wasn't, okay, since you crawled back on your hands and knees and, and you just, you know, you, 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 you have begged for forgiveness and I'm gonna make you a servant of mine, you can work your way up from there. That's not what happened. What happened was the father not only forgave him, but with open arms began to run after his son. This image is ridiculous to the Pharisees. They're thinking this is uh, Jesus, what are you even talking about right now? And the other thing that he emphasizes is the shift of shame. See, it was really shameful. Everybody around there, the village, would have been watching and they would have seen this son. And when he came back into town, because according to Mosaic law, he should have been punished severely. And so they were all expecting this kid to get punished. And then the father runs out and hugs him and embraces him and protects him from the village that knows that he deserves punishment. 
And so what happens when he embraces his son is he takes all the shame and punishment that he deserved and puts it upon himself. So now the village doesn't look at the son and go, what a shame anymore. They look at the father and go, how could you let him get away with this? And all of the shame is put on himself and then he does something crazy. He takes all of his riches and blessings and puts it on the son. This is crazy, this is revolutionary. What Jesus is saying here is no matter how far you are from God, you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the lifestyle that you've lived, that everybody is welcomed back into the Father's arms. He says it's not something that you have to earn, it's simply a gift that you have to receive from your heavenly Father. That he takes the punishment and the shame and the rejection that you rightfully deserve and he puts it upon himself and instead gives you what he deserves, which is blessings and riches and honor. Now, a lot of times we want to end the story here. This is, this is the Disney ending, right? This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the heavenly father that we want to run to and we should. And yet that's not where Jesus ends the story. Because remember, there's two sons, and we've only heard from one of the sons so far. There's a second son. Where has he been this whole time? Well, it tells us in verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. See, the older brother would have known what was going on. The older brother was present during this entire drama. As he's dividing the household, as his son, is, his brother is running off and, and chasing a, a rebellious lifestyle, he's watching all of this and we haven't heard a peep from him. And so the, the spotlight begins to shift. It was on the sinners and the tax collectors and now it's going to the Pharisees and you better believe that they know that the heat is on. Because what he's saying in this moment is he's saying, you know, you have been totally absent from this drama because you don't know the father. You don't care for the father. You don't love him. You could have had his back. You could have tried to redeem his honor. You could have chased your younger brother to come back home, and yet you did none of those. You stood by and watched the whole thing happen because you don't actually love your father. Next part reveals the older brother's true colors. It says this, But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, and this is key, you can see the attitude, when this son, not my brother, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And we see this whole time that him being faithful to his father was just an act. It was an act because he was trying to get what he really wanted. He didn't care for the father. He didn't love the father. What he was doing was he was trying to manipulate the father. I will be a good person. I will earn all these riches. In fact, I will be so good that you will be in my debt. Ends like this. It says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and the story ends. That's it, cliffhanger. We wanna know what happens next, Jesus. Tell us about this, you can't just leave it there. The fathers run out to the older brother, the older brother's throwing a fit. What 
happens. And all of us, we want the fairy tale ending. We want it to be, and then the older brother realized that he was being an idiot and that he fell down to his knees and says, I've been full of pride. I've been a hypocrite. Let's go in, let's party because your son has been found. That's what we all want happily ever after, big hug. That's not what happens. The reason why he left it open-ended is because this was an invitation to the Pharisees. Pharisees, you are the older brother. You are standing outside of the party. I am giving you an invitation to come into a relationship with the Father. What do you want to do? So they get to decide, how do you write the end of this story, Pharisees? Do you want to come into the father, Father's house and celebrate, or are you going to stand outside? What are you going to do? And here's how the Pharisees write the end of this story. A few chapters later, we see what they decide. And so if we were going to write the end of the story, it would be something like this. The older brother, in his rage, picked up a stone and bashed his father over the head in front of the whole party in which he died and bled to death. That's the end of the story. Because that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees, a couple chapters later, said, we don't want this invitation. We're not interested. In fact, we're going to crucify the Son of God. And so at the end of this story, we learn a couple things about both of these characters. Jesus is showing us that both of these brothers are really guilty of the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. They were both lost, they both needed saving, and it was for the reason of rejecting a relationship with their loving father. They just did it in different ways. They never wanted the father's love. They never wanted, uh, they only wanted gifts, not the giver. They only wanted his stuff. They didn't want a relationship with him. And, And it was, one did it through rebellion and through rejection. The other did it through morality and manipulation. However, in the end, only one of the brothers comes to the father. Only one of the brothers is saved. And what is the difference between the two? It can be summarized in one word, repentance. Repentance. The word has gotten a really bad reputation over the years as we think about repentance. As soon as I say the word repentance, maybe this is the image that comes to your mind because it comes into mind, is a guy standing on a corner with a sign and a bullhorn yelling, turn or burn, right? <laughs> That's kind of the image that we have of repentance. And yet repentance is, is, is a beautiful, it's a powerful word because it has so much freedom in it. When we think about repentance, it's not only important, it is the core of the Christian faith, it's the core of a revival, is repentance. You can have no salvation, you can have no faith without repentance. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And we see this throughout the entire scriptures. You go to the Old Testament, and every prophet that goes to Israel, sent by God to speak on his behalf, his message is repent, come back to God. You've gotten off track. You fast forward to the New Testament, you have this guy, John the Baptist, he comes out of the wilderness, he's looking crazy. What are the words that he says? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' first sermon and the sermon that he preaches over and over and over again is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You go to Acts, the first sermon that Peter preaches and they preach it over and over again. He stands in front of a big audience and he says, repent and turn to Jesus. Repentance is at the core of our faith. Repentance is about changing our, our mind and turning our life over to him. I think the son gives a perfect, the younger son gives a perfect illustration of repentance. It says that he comes to his senses, meaning he realizes that he needs a change. He realizes that he has done wrong, that he has rebelled against the father, and then he goes back and he turns his life around and he heads the way of the father. Before he was rebelling and going his own way, now he heads back and goes the way of, of his heavenly father. 
And so repentance is really about a change in our mind and a change in our life. It's about a confession and a commitment. True repentance is about standing in front of a perfect and holy God and taking ownership of your stuff. It's not playing the blame game. It's not, you know, just pushing off this side. I'm sure God gets me. He understands. We kind of have this deal. It's none of that. It is standing before a perfect and holy God and saying, here is all of my stuff. Here's all my rebellion. Here's my attitude. Here's my lust. Here's my greed. Everything that you are, I am not. And here's why. Here's the things in my life. We do this not out of this fear that God is gonna punish us. You know, when I was young, I, uh, I remember a pastor telling me something about this because we don't, we don't take our sins seriously. And so he says, here's what you're doing. Every time that you decide to pursue your own pleasures and your own desires, what you're really doing is you're saying, I want this thing or this person more than I want you, God. And so just verbalize it, just try it. Let's do an exercise, okay? So every time you go out and you willfully sin, what I want you to do is before you do it, I want you to say, God, I right now want to worry more than I want to trust you. Right now, I want this relationship, even though I know that I'm not supposed to pursue it, I want this relationship more than I want a relationship with you. I want to view this pornography more than I want a relationship with you because this is what's going to bring me more pleasure right now. He says, just go ahead and verbalize it, try it. Right before you do it, just go, okay, God, just so you know, because he knows, just so you know, I'm going to go ahead and chase this thing, and I'm going to reject you for a little bit, okay? It takes all the fun out of it, I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. You do it, and you'll just go, yeah, I don't really want to do it anymore. This is a bummer, dude. It's not even fun. See, repentance is motivated by seeing who God is, his perfection, his love for us, and acknowledging that we continue to reject it for lesser things. We continue to choose these momentary pleasures in order, in, instead of a relationship with our Heavenly Father, and when we repent, we are realizing that we have hurt the one that we love. See, repentance is not just like about fear, and it's about God's gonna reject me, and he's not gonna love me anymore. No, that's not what it's about. Repentance comes from a, a place of love. See, think about this. Um, whenever my wife and I get in a disagreement, and I come to realize that I'm wrong, um, I have to go and I have to apologize to my wife. I have to apologize to her. Not because I'm afraid of her. She's 95 pounds. <laughs> I'm more than that. Times a couple. I'm not afraid of her that she's gonna do something to me. I'm not even afraid that she's gonna stop loving me. But the reason why I go and I apologize is because I have hurt a person that I love dearly and I hate that. I hate that I've hurt you. And so I wanna come and I wanna clear the air. I, I wanna mend this relationship. I don't want to be this barrier between us, not out of fear, not out of rejection, but out of love because I care for you and I hate that I've hurt you. That's what biblical repentance is, is we stand before our God and we say, you know what, I know I'm forgiven. I know that it's a gift. I know that there's nothing I can do to earn it and yet I hate that I hurt your heart. And so I come before you and I just want to clear the air between us. This also is what continues to keep us what I like to call blessable. 
is God wants to bless you, but when you are living in rebellion outside of his will, he, can, he can't bless you. He can't go, look, I know that you're rejecting me. I know that you're rebelling against me, but here, I'm gonna continue to bless you anyway. No, he's going, I'm gonna allow you to feel the consequences of your sin so that you will come back. One of the conversations I find myself having on a regular basis with people is, um, and it usually goes something like this. Someone will come up to me and say, you know, my fiance and I, we're just, we're really struggling relationally. We keep fighting all the time and we have all these issues. And, and they're always surprised because what they think I'm going to say is, well, tell me what you're fighting about. Tell me how this occurred. Tell me about the situation. Tell me. And I never ask that question. I always say, now, are you sleeping together? And they go, what? <laughs> no, we're arguing. We're arguing. And I, no, 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 <laughs> I get that. I understand. But let's like figure out, is this a blessable relationship or not? Like, can we be blessed by God in this relationship? So let's wrestle with that stuff first. Are you sleeping together? And they go, uh-huh. And I go, well, there you go. Yeah, but like, we're argu- I don't care. You're arguing because God's not in the middle of this. He can't bless this relationship. And so let's address this issue first before we even talk about those things. We need to repent. We got to stop living this lifestyle if we want God to be in the middle of it. And usually they never come back for a second counseling <laughs> session. So... Jesus gives us a great model of what our prayer life should look like in the Lord's Prayer. And one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is that we ask God to forgive us our debts or our sins. Now, as Christians, we understand that God has forgiven our sins when we become a Christian, all past, present, and future sins. But again, it's about clearing the air, the relational air between us and God, making sure that there's no barriers between us, making sure that we continue to stay blessable. And what happens is when we go in there and we have to really dig in and figure out, Lord, what is it that I am rebelling against you with? Show me. If you need any help figuring out what you need to repent of, I would say a good place to start is repent of your lack of self-awareness. Because we all got a lot of stuff to repent of. In fact, some of us, we have to go in and we go, God, I don't even know where to start with this deal. Just give me a, give me a couple just for today that I can start with. It says in uh, Psalm 139, 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We are so blind to our sin. Our egos are so fragile that we continue to be blind to it and we don't want to acknowledge it. And it says, God, let me see that for what it is. Allow me to see my sin, convict me of this because I can continue to live in ignorance and allow that thing to fester or I need you to show me what I need to repent of. And I think God will reveal it. Last service, I prayed that prayer. Wow, I've been praying that prayer all week. It's been a rough week. It's been a freeing week, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but it's kind of been like I started off as a, see, the problem with being a pastor is you have to live out what you're preaching. Like God goes, oh, you want to talk about repentance? Great, I love it. Let's talk about repentance, and let's start with you this week. Here we go. And the whole week is just unpacking it. It's like an onion. One layer after another, I go, Lord, I repent. And he goes, great. Now let's go deeper. Okay, um, Lord, I repent of this. And then, Okay, good. Let's go a little deeper now. And every day it's, Wow. I didn't realize what was down there. There's some pretty scary stuff down there. There's been some stuff that's really been festering for a while that I haven't dealt with. So some of us, we need to repent of maybe it's an attitude. It's apathy, fear, worry, doubt, bitterness, arrogance. Maybe it's a lifestyle just like the younger brother in which we know. We know. We know that we're living this life. We know that this is against God's will. And so some of us just gotta be honest and we gotta go, you know what, enough is enough. 
Some of us were like the older brother in which it is self-righteousness and pride that continues to separate us from God. God, yeah, okay, I might need you once in a while, but I've kind of got this figured out. God, I'm a good person, so you, you should bless me. In fact, I, I kind of deserve this. I, Jesus, I don't need your salvation. I don't need any of that stuff because I can figure this out on my own. We need to repent of that. One of the great things about the gospel is it's an equal opportunity offender. It offends the outlaw and the self-righteous, and it says both of you are wrong and need Jesus. And so we have to repent of both our best and our worst deeds. I met with a counselor a few years back and I was feeling anxious and I was feeling worried and there's a lot of discontent and, and you know, on the outside, everything is going good. Why do I feel like this? And so we began to kind of explore that a little bit and eventually he helped me come to the realization that the reason why, even when I'm serving God and I'm doing ministry and I'm not experiencing any joy is because the whole motivation for it was about me. It was selfish ambition, not holy ambition. It was about making Cody known, not making Jesus known. And so I had to repent of that, and I have to repent of that on a daily basis now because it so easily becomes about me and not about him. Even in my best deeds, oftentimes they're about me. And so I wanna finish with this, is if you think about the prodigal son and you think about the incredible weight and slavery that he felt to his sin, and you think about that rebellion and that disconnection, that relational separation that he had with the father, but then you also think about that moment of joy that he had when he came home. The freedom that he felt, you had to imagine that there was just this incredible weight on his shoulders and when the father came with open arms running towards him and embracing him and says, I forgive you, that freedom had to feel amazing. And some of you guys have been walking around and, and you've been enslaved to your stuff. And there is a freedom that awaits you. The Father has his arms open and he says, all I'm waiting for is for you to turn towards me and I'm ready. I I've been here the whole time. It's just about, are you, gonna, are you gonna come back or not? Are you gonna come to me? So we talked about last week that revival has to begin with each one of us. Our prayer is, Lord, bring revival and let it begin with me. And so I wanna give you an opportunity today to do that. Is in the next couple of minutes, I'm gonna ask that you, you don't leave, that you wait to the end, because I think some of us, we need to do some, some relational work with, with the Lord. Is we need to talk to him and we need to go, you know what, Lord, there's some stuff that I just, I need to repent of, plain and simple. Because remember, there's two aspects to this deal, right? Of this, this Christian faith. There's repentance and then there's faith. And I wanna give you an opportunity to exercise both. Repentance in these next couple moments is we sing a song of repentance and we just say, Lord, here's my stuff. I gotta turn around, I gotta change. And if I don't know what it is, reveal it to me. And I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. And then after that, we're gonna take communion together and exercise our faith in that way to say that, Lord, now I know that you've taken it. I know that it is forgiven and I want to live in that forgiveness. And so I'm gonna ask the band to come up as I pray and then we're gonna enter into a time of repentance and faith. Lord God, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you that we don't have to try to earn our way into heaven, that we don't have to try to impress you. In fact, it's incredibly freeing knowing that there is nothing that we can do that will separate us from you and yet there oftentimes is this this relational block in which we can't experience real freedom, we can't experience that relationship because maybe it's a lifestyle issue in which we know that you have something better for us. We know that we have rejected your teachings and that we're rebelling and so it pains us every time we try to speak to you, every time we try to read your scriptures because we feel 
like a hypocrite. And Lord, you're just waiting and saying, come back. And yet there are in almost the same moments, there are these times in which we know we're rebelling and yet we have the self-righteousness in which we think we don't need you, which we've got it all together, which we're good enough. And Lord, you tell us to repent of that as well. And so Lord God, I pray in these next coming moments that you would bring conviction, not guilt, not condemnation, but conviction, that you would help us to be able to see what we need to repent of, that we can turn it around and we can be in right relationship with you. And so Lord God, I pray that you would be present in these moments and that you would speak to us. So here we pray, amen.